Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of PSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled PSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we rewind back to April the 11th, 2017. This was originally episode 1981. It was called Stranded Vehicle Successful MacGyver Stories. People that fixed their vehicle and got out of a jam by channeling their inner MacGyver. It was one of the more popular shows that we did. I think you'll really enjoy hearing this one. And remember, while our Rewind episodes are commercial-free, you can always help support the Survival Podcast simply by starting your online shopping at tspaz.com. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 11th, 2017, and this is episode 1981 of the Survival Podcast. Now, this is going to be a good one, guys. I think this one's going to help a lot of people. It's going to save people from inconveniences. It's going to save people money. It's going to get people out of sticky situations. And over time, it may even save lives. I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Today is called Stranded Vehicle Successful MacGyver Stories. So uh, about a week and a half ago, a friend of mine ended up in a sticky situation, I'll tell you about leading off the show, and uh, was able to get out of it using a MacGyver-like solution to the problem. What I mean by MacGyver-like is if you have a bad starter motor in your car and you have a full set of tools and a new starter motor and you swap the starter motor out, That's not a MacGyver-like solution, right? A MacGyver-like solution might be something like your starter motor's bad, but you can take a screwdriver and jump the starter and cause it to jump the vehicle, and that gets you going and you get home, right? That's, that's a simple one. And so I put out a call for people to tell me about times you got stuck somewhere and were able to get home, whether it was you know in, in full speed or limping or whatever, or even limp your way to a garage, um, by using some sort of innovative MacGyver-like solution to the problem. I'll tell you uh, a very old one that I did with a buddy way back in the day, as they say. I'll tell you about the one my buddy did, and I'll go into your emails. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the uh, the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is MacGyver-like solutions to stranded vehicles. Um, before I start, I want to say how this is going to go. I'm going to read the emails, other than the two stories I have to tell you of my own, in the order that they came in, first to last. If you don't hear your story and you commented on the blog, it's because you didn't listen. What I said repeatedly on the air and on the post on the blog, please email your, your stories to me. Um, most of the people that commented on the blog, as I got the blog uh, announcements in my email, did end up in the folder, but if I missed you, that's probably why. I'm going to read everybody that came in with a caveat. The caveat is, there is a few of these that are very similar. 
So I'll say, okay, this is Tom, and he has another example of blah, blah, blah. And we'll do the short version of it once we've explained it at length and maybe commented a little bit on it. So if, if, you, if you send something in that five other people sent in and it's pretty much the same solution and you send it in second, you're going to get the abbreviated version, not because you, know, you suck or something like that. You're going to get the abbreviated version because I had to pick some direction to go, and we're going to go order uh, that they came in. So, again, this is times where one way or another you or a friend or somebody you know, verifiable, um, ended up stuck and was able to unstick themselves uh, through the use of some sort of MacGyver-like uh, technique. I'll give you mine. I actually have a few, and maybe I'll share some others, but we'll, we'll see as we determine how long this is going to take because this was a pretty popular request and a lot, a lot of stuff came in. I'm going to go all the way back to... Um, When I was a teenager, a friend of mine named Heath and I decided we were going to go fishing out at the Susquehanna River, which is a good two-hour drive from where I grew up. At least the part I fished of it was. And uh, Because you want to fish north of Harrisburg. I don't know what it's like today, but back then, if you fished south of Harrisburg and Susquehanna, you know that three-eyed fish from The Simpsons? Yeah, he was in there. But uh, so... So we decide in our infinite wisdom that, you know what, getting up really early sucks. So what we'll do, we'll get a couple six-packs of beer, and we'll pack a cooler. We'll drive out to the river the night before. We know this parking lot that we can park the car in. And we had this uh, Pontiac Grand Prix, you know, with uh, these, these really great bucket seats that reclined all the way back. Um, 75 LJ Grand Prix, if you're familiar with the car. And uh, we'll just... Shoot the shit for a while, tell lies about girls, put the seats back, pass out of sleep in the car, wake up in the morning and go fishing, and we'll be right there at dawn at the river, which seemed like a good plan, and it worked out. But we wake up, and at some point on the way out there, we'd stop for gas, and I said, why don't you drive for a while? So he was sitting in a driver's seat, so I'm like, well, just drive to the, to the place we put in at, you know. And so he drives, he goes to, well, he goes to drive, he starts the car, starts right up, puts the car in gear, And he hits the accelerator. Absolutely nothing happens. The car just sits there. It doesn't make any sound. It's running. It's idling, but it won't. It won't go. So we're, we're like, well, what the hell, you know? And you know, we're two kids from the coal region. We know about cars breaking down and stuff. But usually that means it doesn't run. Like, what's going on here? So we start fiddling around with it. Pop the hood. I get under the hood, and I'm, you know, the carburetor's working. I'm, I'm, I've got the little thing on the side of the carburetor that goes to the throttle cable, and I'm manually revving the carburetor. So, okay, that's working. It's got to be the linkage somewhere in this, this throttle cable. He's down on the floor, like upside down, turned upside down on the floor with a pair of pliers and a flashlight, and all of a sudden I hear the car go, vroom, 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 vroom. He goes, I got it. So well, what's up? He goes, the throttle cable broke right where it attaches to the, the pedal. And I'm like, oh, Is there any way to reattach it? He's like, not really. There's about a quarter inch of it sticking out of the floor. There's nothing to grab onto. Now, we're stuck two hours from home. We're like 17 years old. And you really need a new part or some other things to fix this thing. So we start thinking about it, and I had just put a stereo in the car, and I had run 6 by 9 speakers like every kid in the 80s did with an amp from a Radio Shack, to the back of the car and run it along the, uh, you know, underneath the door panel, not the door panels, but the uh, little things that go along the floor. So we just pulled one of the speaker cables out. So we had a pretty long cable then. We tied it around the, the, the throttle linkage on the carburetor, ran it under the hood, put the window down a little bit, and got an old bolt that we found laying by the side of the parking lot, tied it to that rope so it had like a handle, 
And then you could just pull the bolt with your left hand while you steered the car with your right hand and drive. So we drove. We spent the day fishing like we had planned. We came home. We took the highway home so you could set the cruise control in the car. And I drove it like that for about two weeks, and it turned out a throttle cable for that car was kind of expensive. And uh, so I started thinking, is there a way I could save money? So this is my second MacGyver thing in the same issue. I got an electrical lug, like the little steel electrical lugs that you crimp on to a, a wire that's going to like clamp down to a battery. It's got a little circle, and it crimps on. One that was the closest in size to the throttle cable. Now, there's no way that's going to handle the stress. I took some epoxy that was very popular at the time. JB Weld would be the equivalent today, but it was called PC7. And it was epoxy that you mixed two putties together. And I mixed up a good lob of that, put that on the cable, slipped the, the lug over it, and crimped it. And then I formed a second layer of the epoxy on the outside to the cable. And I let that dry for a day, cure for a day. I took some stainless steel wire, and I wired that lug to the, the accelerator pedal, and it worked. I drove the car for two years, or maybe a year and a half, right till when I joined the Army, uh, with it that way. And by that time, the car was shot. This was a car I paid $400 for when I was almost 16 years old. I wasn't quite 16 yet. Uh, so, obviously, this wasn't the greatest car in the world. And I was going to junk it, because that was the only way I was going to get any money for it, was just to junk it. So I wanted to see how strong that bond was. So I wired up the carburetor so that it wouldn't give. I got in the car. I took two feet. I had to push with two feet and hold the steering wheel to finally get it to fail. And when it failed, the cable broke again. The lug was still epoxy to the cable itself. So that was an example of getting out of the situation and then a long-term fix that saved me about 40 bucks, which in 1986-ish uh, was a lot of money for me living on my own already as a teenager. So that's mine. Now here's my buddy. He's a shorter one. My buddy David is out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if he was in New Mexico or Arkansas or Texas. He travels everywhere. And uh, his battery dies. I mean, he's in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody around. Nobody. Him and his dog. And uh, he's got this nice Corvette, but it's, it's dead. He noticed there's an electric fence. Well, where there's an electric fence, there's a power source. So he follows the electric fence for a while and finds the solar charger with a battery. Knowing the rancher probably wouldn't mind if he borrowed it for a little bit, he disconnects the battery from the charger, takes it to his car, wires it up to his battery, dumps energy from the solar-charged battery from the fence into his car long enough to get the car to start, and then, of course, puts the battery back on the electric fence, makes sure it's working for the guy that he borrowed it from, truly did borrow it, and is able to extract himself from the situation. Now, that's a situation that most people would just not really even conceive of what to do. That's another example of a MacGyver-like situation. So... Let's talk about things that you guys said. And some of these stories are short, some of them are long. I'll probably pause on the long ones and see if I can abbreviate them for time purposes of the episode. But here we go. This one comes from Matt. Matt says, happened to my brother several years ago. He was driving my father's 1990-ish Ford F-250. The drive shaft broke about 100 miles from home. He wasn't pulling anything. Fortunately, a mechanic stopped by to see what was going on. They removed the broken section of the drive shaft going to the differential and supported the section coming from the transmission with wire. He then put the truck in four-wheel drive and drove home. Not only did he make it home, he swears he got better fuel mileage on it. So that might a few people might need help with that. 
When you look under a vehicle and you see on your back of your vehicle, you got your two back tires, you got your axle, it's this big pumpkin looking thing in the middle, that's your differential. The shaft that goes there is the drive shaft, and it comes from the transmission. The transmission transfers torque from the engine through the drive shaft to the differential and turns the wheels. Well, if you have a four-wheel drive vehicle, you have a pumpkin up front, you have a differential up front, and you have a second drive shaft that goes to the front. And when you put it in four-wheel drive, that engages and you have wheels turning in the front and the back. So if you lose a U-joint, you lose a drive shaft, whatever, in a four-wheel drive vehicle, you can remove it, prop it up, what have you, and use front-wheel drive to get where you're going. That's going to be one of those that I'm going to say, we've seen this one before, quite a few people wrote in with that one. Uh, here's one from Herb. Herb says, Guy parked near our drive well while checking on an elderly neighbor back in the 70s. Came back out to the car and it wouldn't start. Dead battery. He did not have cables. I had a set, but one of the cable clamps had been torn off. I knew enough about electricity. I didn't want to be holding a raw cable wire against a battery post. I was 17. 40-ish guy thought I was nuts, but I pulled my first car, 1970 model Ford Maverick, up until the two steel bumpers touched together. Attached the positive battery terminals together with the good part of the jumper cable, and he cranked his car and went on his way. Not many cars have steel bumpers anymore, but it's definitely possible on older cars. Trucks and farm equipment, if you can, uh, can bare metal or chromed metal touching between the two vehicles. So that one might require some explanation for people that aren't, you know, savvy to how vehicles work. You've got a ground and a positive. So even if you, you had lost like the red and black on your jumper cables, they're really just so you don't mix it up. So if you had lost a red one, you could do the two black ones to the, to the, the red terminal. And as long as the two vehicles are touching, they have a common ground. So the ground through the, the vehicle that's got power will pass through the other vehicle and transfer power through. So that's kind of another MacGyver situation. It probably, I think some of these you're going to find these older vehicles, we were more able to do these things than some newer ones, though this one's a newer vehicle. Backstory, on July 5th, 2015, my wife and I were returning from a tent camping trip in Michigan. This is from John in Indiana. Cruising along at 70 miles an hour in my old 96 Chevy truck. As I passed the semi, he began to cross into my lane. I jammed hard on the brakes and moved over as far as the road allowed. After that, we decided it was time for a break, so we hit the next exit. It was then that I discovered I had almost no brake power left. Pulled into a truck stop and determined I had hit the brakes so hard I blew a rusty brake line on the right front wheel. This was Sunday afternoon on a holiday weekend with no shop help available. We were 150 miles from home and I had commitments at work the next morning. Solution. My truck had ABS, so I located an AutoZone store that was open and cautiously made my way there. The guy was great me great and helped me find the right brass plug so I could remove the right front brake line from the ABS manifold and plug the outlet. Driving a truck with no right front brake is not recommended, but I got us on the road and back home for $20, most of which was a tip for the guy at the auto parts store, Joe in Indiana. So, or John in Indiana. So that's an example of we just, we just plugged the hole and went without one of the brakes. Kind of like using one of the drive shafts. Okay. This one comes from Travis in Southern California. He says, I know, I know. Jack, I was driving an older Chevy truck across the desert in the pre-cell phone days when the throttle cable broke. I removed the throttle cable from the pedal and connected the cable uh, from the mechanical cruise control using cable ties. Got me home. Obviously, this won't work on cars with electronic cruise control. So he did something similar to mine. He, he, he went, now back in the day, they used to have what do you call the mechanical cruise control, which basically held the throttle at a certain level. So this is similar to what I did. I think my solution was actually probably safer because you had full control over accelerate and decelerate 
to, to a, a much greater degree, I think, but it worked. Uh, and my, my solution, as long as you have a mechanical throttle, and there's a place you can tie onto it, it would work whether you had electronic cruise control or not. Uh, this one says, uh, this is another um, rear universal joint broke on a 4x489 truck. Same solution, Jason, in Tennessee. Remove the rear drive uh, shaft and go home in front wheel drive. That's a very good one to know. Hi, Jack. In the mid-1990s, as a college student, my car was a Dodge Daytona Hashback, also known as the Chrysler K car. As I, li I lived in Southern California at the time, my favorite cheap weekend for young people was Las Vegas. Those were the glory days of the $9.99 buffets and $50 night suites. If you didn't gamble, it was a deal. Anyhow, on the trip home, I was near I-15 near Barstow, California. My engine temperature gauge was reading hot. It was very hot outside, well above 100, so I pulled over at the next gas station to investigate. Turns out the plastic coolant overflow tank had cracked. I assume you're familiar with the function of this, but here's a diagram on Google I found. This was a bigger deal than it might seem because the radiator was emptying itself of coolant. I thought about crimping the hose from the radiator but decided against that. I noticed that someone outside the Mini Mart chugging a plastic liter of Mountain Dew and had an idea. I took the empty soda pop bottle and duct taped it in place and stuck the overflow hose from the radiator into the mouth of the empty bottle. After refilling the radiator, it worked like a champ. I only fixed it over a year later when I decided to sell the car. Thanks, Sean. So let me explain that one a bit. In some vehicles, especially at this time, the radiator was actually designed to, as things expanded, overflow some. And there was a plastic tank, and there was a hose that runs from that plastic tank back to your radiator cap. And when the water comes up to a certain level, the coolant, I should say, comes up to a certain level in your radiator, the excess goes into that plastic container. And when it needs more, basically a vacuum draws it back in. Okay, it's pretty simple technology. But the problem is if that little plastic expansion tank has a crack in it, that, that coolant that's coming out of your radiator is spilling onto the ground, and when your vehicle needs it again, it's not there. Of course, the vehicle begins to run hotter and hotter and hotter. You get greater and greater expansion. You expel more and more coolant. Um, crimping off that hose probably would work, but this was a more elegant solution and actually was completely capable of solving the problem as long as the Mountain Dew bottle would last. It's just another plastic container, so well done there for Sean. Here's another overheating one. Traveling home, this is from um, Greg. Greg says, traveling home from Thanksgiving from the in-laws, we stopped at a rest area along Interstate 4 in Florida. Upon returning to the car, I noticed a pool of antifreeze and said, somebody's going to have a problem. Little did I realize that somebody was me. No sooner had we resumed our trip, I noticed the temperature gauge of my car went into the danger zone. We got off I-4 at the next exit and discovered that the pet cock for the radiator had broken. I'm going to stop there because, again, some people don't know what that means. So on a radiator, usually there's a little thing on the bottom that you can use to drain the radiator. That thing's called a pet cock. And you either, there's, there's many different ways they screw in, they expand in, they do all types of things. But if that breaks, again, we're back to the same thing. You have coolant leaking out of the radiator. Uh, he said, we had duct tape in the car and my son was chewing a wad of gum. In the spirit of MacGyver, I put gum around the broken pet cock and added a healthy amount of duct tape to hold it in place and refilled the radiator. 
I had assumed this wouldn't actually work and filled a large drink cooler with water as a backup to refill the radiator again while we limped home. However, the fix worked perfectly, and I even drove the car for a week while waiting to get a new radiator installed. I uh, don't recommend doing it long term, but yes, it did work, and that is another example of getting home when otherwise you'd be stuck. Um, because as we'll hear from a later story, if you keep driving with an overheated vehicle, not only might you end up straight on the side of the road, you might do permanent damage to it, uh, very expensive permanent damage. Okay, this one is from Greg. Greg says, great topic for a show. Keep up the good work. A trick for a blown-out brake cylinder or caliper is to carry a small pair of vice grips so you can pinch off a brake line. You'll probably ruin the brake hose too, but you won't lose all your fluid and you can limp home. This doesn't help if you rot a line before the caliper, But maybe some creative cutting and crimping and clamping with the vice grips can probably be MacGyvered. I was a mechanic for about 11 years before I started working on locomotives. I was a tire expert and had very few flats in my life. But always carried your famous plug kit. Don't you know I've had three blowouts in three years where this just wouldn't work. It happens. Two of the times I did not even have a spare. Luckily, one of these was an inside duel on an E350. All vehicles now have a spare, even the dually and the Victor kit. Of course, a small pair of vice grips resides there as well. Vice grips are one of the most valuable tools. They, they really can do a lot of things for you, and I recommend in your vehicle kit, you have some little ones and some full-size ones and a pair of channel locks. Those are some you know major MacGyver-level tools, in my opinion. Now, what he's talking about is similar to the last guy with the brakes where they used a plug, but if we cut... Uh, if we have a damage to a brake line and it's leaking fluid, if we can prevent it from getting to the leak, we don't have brakes on that wheel, but we have brakes on the other three wheels. And being you know very slow and cautious, we can get a vehicle where it needs to go. It's something I did quite a bit in the military for uh, operators during convoys and things like that. All right, before we move on, I want to put a little humor in today's show. So he said he was a tire expert. I wonder if he ever went to tire college. I'm going to play a little excerpt from Ron White's They Call Me Tater Salad uh, National Tour. And uh, I'm going to tell you right now before I do it, it's funny as hell. Um, it sounds plausible like it really happened, but it uses some words some of you don't like, including the F word and the phrase using GD. If you do not want to hear it, do not email me and be pissed off that I put this on the show. I've warned you in advance, and uh, since you don't want to uh, partake in the humor, fast forward uh, uh, one minute and 31 seconds and not a second less, a few seconds more if you wish, and you'll skip the whole thing. And uh, I give you Mr. Ron White. Sears, I would tell this story on stage every night until the lawsuit settled. <laughs> I had my van down in Savannah, Georgia. I didn't like the way the tires were wearing on it. I took the van to Sears Automotive, a trusted name in automotive service. <laughs> Takes them three and a half hours to change four tires. Apparently, they had to whittle one of them out of a piece of wheat. I pay them $980 of my hard-earned money. I take a right-hand turn out of the mall. The left rear wheel falls off. It falls off. It falls the fuck off. Turning my van into a tripod, spinning me into a dimension of pissed off I have never been in before in my life. He was a tire guy. Sears, I found out later, had sent him to tire c 
college for three days. Well, apparently he was sick on lug nut day. But they still let him work on my van. So I'm suing them, and I hope that next year they have to change the name of Sears Tower in Chicago to Ron White's uh, big old goddamn building. The next one I have is from Teddy. says, you mean like when I duct taped the Pittman arm mount on my VW van after it rusted off? I figured out there was a problem when I turned the steering wheel, but the van didn't turn. Then I drove to a welding shop to get it welded. He said he didn't have time to do it, but changed his mind when I asked where another welder was. I was a poor college student, and I wasn't going to pay to tow it somewhere else. So some of you are going, what's a pitman arm? A pitman arm is a component that when you turn your steering wheel, uh, the shaft of your steering wheel goes to a box called the steering box. And then that energy needs to be transferred from that box to different components of your vehicle, which allow your front wheels to turn on the vehicle. And the arm that makes that first connection to the other components is called the pitman arm. So basically, he's sitting there steering, but he's just not doing nothing. The wheels aren't going anywhere. So he duct taped it together. That's a, that's a hairy one, but apparently it did work. Uh, this one comes from Blair. Um, Uh, this is another one where he says, on more than one occasion out forward, willing he busted a universal joint, a rear drive shaft, and then just removed or tied up that shaft and used the front differential to get home. Uh, this is from Terry. Terry says, I love your podcast on Sensible Self-Reliance Message. There were five of us driving around in my Datsun 210 in high school. Guys, if you know what a Datsun 210, putting five people in it, that's... Uh, That's interesting. I mean, technically, it's a four-seater car, but that's uh, being generous when you say that. But uh, we, we used to cram about seven people in a Chevy Monza, so I understand. Uh, we were driving down the road when the car front end started vibrating. The passenger tire came off, rolled down the road. Okay, that sounds like Ron White's tire college guy worked on your car. I rode the rotor uh, to the next side street with sparks flying and pulled over. One guy went and recovered the tire, but we didn't have any lug nuts to put it on. I guess Scooter missed lug nut day. It says lug nuts were loose because I had recently replaced the brakes, and my counterpart did not tighten the lug nuts up on his side of the vehicle. He did miss lug nut day. So I took a lug nut off, lug nut off of each of the other wheels, so I would end up with three lug nuts on each wheel. We couldn't get a jack under the car because it was too low, so four guys lifted the front of the car so I could get a wheel on and a lug nut started. I tightened them up, and we drove off and finished the Friday night. I got four lug nuts from the junkyard the next day and never had another problem. Enjoy. I look forward to the show. Terry, uh, I had a similar issue, a uh, very similar issue uh, on a vehicle I had worked on, and I had the tire off of it, and I had all the stuff put away. Uh, to, to finish it the next day, and uh, my grandmother, this is when I was living not with but near my grandmother and would go over to do work and stuff over there, helped by cleaning up and threw away some stuff, including a little bag that had the lug nuts in it, and she threw it away at the perfect time that the trash man had already come and they were gone. 
So I did exactly that. I took one lug nut off of each of the other three tires and put three lug nuts on it and then was able to drive up to Muskrat Purcell's junkyard and get myself a few more lug nuts to, to remedy the problem permanently. So that is a good one, and I have personal experience with it. Um, the next one says, I was. Uh, this is from Jace Jeff. He says, that when I was 16 years old, my POS, uh, 1970 Buick Riviera, started spewing steam from under the hood. I pulled over at the closest parking lot, opened the hood to see a burst-up radiator hose. Nothing I could do, so I called, a, found a payphone and called home. My stepdad arrived about an hour later and assessed the situation. He unfastened the hose and cut off the offending two to three inches off the end of the hose where it attached the radiator, stretched it and fastened it back, filled it with water and drive home, he said. The real lesson for me was not to panic or jump to conclusions. Sometimes there's a solution if you step back and view the problem objectively. So, yeah, as long as the hose will reach, the hose will reach. Uh, here's one I had. It wasn't really a, a MacGyver. It was just the, 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 the way cars were built back then, the, the, um, the, the way they could handle abuse. I had that Grand Prix. I'll tell you how bad it was. It leaked oil. I put a pan underneath it when I parked it at night, and in the morning there would be a bunch of oil in the pan, and I dumped it back into the engine. And one day I'm driving that car, that piece of crap car, over this mountain uh, called Peach Mountain, and it overheats. And I just drive it down to the bottom of the, the mountain. It's a pretty good drive at that point, but I've got it in neutral, you know, and in idle, and I got air blowing through it the best I can. And we get down, and there's a gas I knew there was a gas station about a mile and a half away, and most of it downhill, so I coast into the gas station. We get in there, and what had happened is the bottom radiator hose just fell off. Like, the clamp loosened up, and it fell off. So I let the car cool down, shoved it back on, tightened it back up, filled it up with water, drove it, and never had any problems with it. There's a lot of modern cars, uh, had I pushed them like that, they would have permanent damage to them, and we'll talk about that in a bit as well. But, yeah, whenever you have a bad hose or something, always just, will it still reach if you remove the bad part of it? That's, that's a very important thing to look at. It's really simple, but it's easily overlooked. Um, this one says, lost brakes while driving through Tracy, California, from Mark. Mark says, I had recently adjusted my brakes on my 70 Volkswagen bus without realizing it at the time. Rotated the adjustment star such the brake cylinder piston was almost at the end of its travel. I was traveling from Sacramento, California, visiting my folks back home to Santa Cruz, California. I was coming up on a red light with a heavy for Tracy cross traffic. I stepped on the brake pedal and it went to the floor without any effect. A few seconds of panic, then I wrenched the steering wheel to get me turning right into the parking lane alongside the traffic until I could pull my emergency brake cable based on a VW. After visual inspections, I saw a wet path of escape brake fluid and figured out my error. Home was still another hour and a half away, and my folks were an hour back the way I came. Vice grips to the rescue. I crawled under the vehicle and clamped the closed brake line feeding the rear right wheel. This closed the system, allowing me to pull, put Parcells Law back into work for the remaining three wheels. A few years prior, the same bus died coming home from Sunall, California off-ramp. As I was moving from Sacramento, California to Santa Clara, California, all of my possessions were back at the, were in the back at the time as I lost power and coasted down the road, taking the off-ramp and eventually gliding to a stop off the highway alongside the access road uh, that led to Sunall. I was canvassing, uh, caravanning with a roommate at the time, so we locked up my car. 
finished the trek to Santa Clara where we offloaded his vehicle of many of his possessions into the storage facility. We then went back and unloaded my bus, ferrying my stuff to lock up with his station wagon. I called my dad and explained what happened. He just happened to have a long block VW engine he was planning on using in another vehicle, but agreed to meet me in Sun all a day later. He showed up with a floor jack and hand tools. He had a VW repair shop at the time. I pulled my motor, transferred all the parts, intake manifold, exhaust, etc., to transform that long block and my dead engine into a working motor for my bus. I shoved it into place as dusk was approaching, made the final connections, and was able to drive home. Dad following to make sure I made it. I told the stories in order for more resourcefulness, in my opinion. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Cheers, rain trees. Uh, yeah, so you did an engine swap on the side of the road. Okay, this one is very creative, and I don't know that any new vehicle would be able to do this uh, if you had this problem. Uh, he says, growing up, I had a hopped-up 1969 Torino with a 351 V8. By the way, my favorite Ford motor of all time, the 351. Four-speed heavy-duty clutch. Um, one night, the clutch rod broke, and I was about 20 miles from home. I pulled over and figured out the problem. With no spare parts and no tools, I did the only thing I could think of. I turned off the engine shifted into first gear and started the engine with no working clutch. I speed shifted into second, third, and fourth as needed when I had to stop. I shifted into neutral, turned off the engine, mix and repeat as needed, got home no problem. I hope this is what you wanted. Thank you, Jack, for what you do. Keep up the good work. Pat. So that might take some explanation for people. So especially older cars. If you started them when in a manual with them in first gear, as the starter motor engaged and started turning the motor, the car just started moving. And what the clutch did was disengaged the, the, the flywheel from the transmission so that the engine didn't transfer energy from the engine to the transmission and thereby the wheels. And that's, that's how a manual works. You know, you put that clutch in and you basically have it sitting there freewheeling. As you let it out, it starts engaging the transmission, turning the wheels, car goes down the road. And as you shift gears, you push that clutch in so you don't grind the gears, right? If you know what you're doing anyway. And, You know, most country boys, I think, got in the habit of doing something called speed shifting, was learning right at the right point you could shift your vehicle from first to second, second to third, etc., without using the clutch. Downshifting, not so easy, but upshifting, pretty easy to do. So that would work. I don't know that most vehicles would be able to do that anymore. Um, this one, that's the same one he sent me, too. Uh, this guy says, uh, this is from Guy, he says, if I had a nickel for every time I had to do something creative to get home, well, I'd have a few nickels. My most spectacularly stupid one happened as a teenager, no surprise there. I was driving home late one night in winter and going around a 90-degree bend and put the car in a ditch. Not so bad that a good push wouldn't get it out, but it was on a back road in Canada, so I might have not seen someone for hours maybe all night. I wedged my cassette carrier case up against the gas pedal just enough so the engine would go at a low rev and keep the tires moving. I got out of the car, leaving the driver's door open. Then I pushed the front of the car with a good grunt. The car broke loose and started moving across the road toward the other ditch. I ran, jumped in through the car and forward and barely avoided getting stuck in the other ditch. How I didn't run over myself, I don't know. Another time, my radiator sprung a leak. Luckily, it was winter, sort of. 
to keep the engine from overheating, I'd pull over and loosely pack snow around the engine block. I'd have to keep a good eye on the temperature gauge and pull over uh, maybe every five minutes and do it again. Somehow I made it home without warping the aluminum head of my engine. Uh, JB Weld two-part epoxy has saved me a few times, too, with nuts that got stripped. Some JB Weld on between the nut and the bolt would hold for a while. The exhaust manifold gasket went on me once. I could drive the car relatively normally, but it sounded a bit like a CUC, a C-130 doing a Jado takeoff. Uh, out came the JB Weld and a whole roll of duct tape. Packed the JB Weld in as much as I could and waited for as long as I could for it to cure. Then I used the whole roll of duct tape around the joint. The duct tape kept it good and quiet for about three minutes before melting off, but the JB Weld muffled it enough I made it home through a residential area without getting a ticket. I'm sure there's a dozen other times I did such things, but I almost every time it was with my K car. They truly were a nice, reliant vehicle. Uh, coat hangers for broken muffler hangers. Uh, using my gym towel to soak up water from puddles to squeeze into the radiator. The list goes on, but those Dodge Aries and Plymouth Reliance just never died. Guy. Yeah, that's some good stuff there, man. This one's from Craig and Jennifer. He says, first off, Jack, my story has nothing to do with some impressive MacGyver-style fix, but it's worth telling nonetheless. Thirty years ago, the wife and I were boondocking an old fire road 20 miles from the asphalt. Came upon a couple in distress about 5 p.m. A black streak on the road was the motor oil they lost from their oil filter separated at the seam and fell off the truck several hours earlier around 9 a.m., The couple were glad to see us. At least they asked if we could possibly get them back to civilization. First thing, I, first things first, I assessed their medical condition, and, and though emotionally they were stable but hungry and dehydrated, they came this far out in the mountains with nothing, not even jackets or a blanket. We poured them some cool water from our 10-gallon igloo jug, and my wife got busy making them both sandwiches and some cut fruit. Once we saw their immediate physical needs, the husband showed me the broken oil filter and asked me if I could believe his bad luck. A rock apparently bounced off and busted it off. You should have seen the look on his face when I pulled out my spare PH8A Fram oil filter and six quarts of 10W40 for my Ford and helped put them on his Ford. In less than 20 minutes, we were able to get them running and follow them back to the highway as it was getting dark, and I wished them well as they were on their way. I know my story ain't sexy, devoid of any cool gee whiz tricks or anything, but it was just an ordinary way to prepare for a normal trip. Simple self-sufficiency is a lifestyle we've lived for 30 years, and I'm willing to bet the couple we rescued might be a bit better prepared next trip, Craig and Jennifer from uh, California. Um, you know, I got to say something on that. I've heard many stories like this of people being found like out in Death Valley and stuff that didn't have jack shit. And, uh, man, I hope if you're listening to this show, if you're going more, if you're going anywhere, you should have things to be prepared. But when you're going to leave the, the, the hard road by more than a mile, you really need to think a little bit more. In some places, people get, you know, 20 miles out in the middle of nowhere and not having any food or water. Um, the guy that I, I mentioned that kind of kicked this off and reminded me of all my old stories, David, with his, uh, his uh, Corvette and charging it with a fence uh, battery. Uh, he told me a story recently of somewhere he was, I think it was somewhere out in like White Sands, New Mexico or something like that, hiking, and some guy shows up and he has no water. You're in the middle of freaking the desert, you have no water, what is wrong? And like, not like his water ran out, he has no water. It happens. This one's from Neil. Neil says, 73 Chevy, three quarter ton manual transmission. Time to leave the doctor's office parking lot and go home. My foot went all the way to the floor. Clutch spring broke. Found black rubber bungee toolbox. And it worked better than the original. I just left it on there. Same truck, not roadside, but at home trying to change the gasket on the side of the 292 straight six. Snapped the bolt off. Didn't know how to drill it out or tap. 
So I took a flat metal bar, drilled two holes where the other bolts went through, and put a bend in it to apply pressure where the third bolt end should be. Like a tightened down leaf spring. Worked great. Also just left it like that. Sent from my iPhone. <laughs> okay. Uh, not exactly a textbook repair, but it works. Um, this one says, uh, from Chad, whale jaw vice grip to limp home on a broken CV axle. I really appreciate your show. The content is great. A state closest ID. Sometimes I think your tagline should be helping you live a better life. Comma, if times get better, or even if they don't. In that vein, I seem to find myself always driving high mileage front wheel drive vehicles. One weekend, I found myself 100 plus miles from home with a broken CV joint. I was able to use a whale jaw vice grip to clamp onto the CV joint by the transmission and widget into, pl into a place where it should not, where it would not turn. Then I used a handyman secret weapon, a coat hanger, to tie the axle up so it couldn't contact the stub that was still in the hub. The limp home technique is not for the faint of heart done incorrectly. You could have a lot of metal swinging around at a high rate of speed and it could find area. Thanks, Chad. Uh, the whale jaw vice grip is an excellent all-around tool. If you haven't reviewed it for Amazon, I suggest it. You can use it for car repairs, plumbing, and all sorts of good stuff. I'm not going to really explain that one because if I have to, you probably shouldn't be doing it. But let's talk about whale jaw vice grips for a second. Usually they're just called large jaw vice grips. Whale jaw is kind of a, a slang term that mechanics and handy types use. If you if you take a look at them, you'll see exactly why. They kind of remind you of like the head of like a, a big blue or a sperm whale or something like that. Uh, like the, the 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 jaws almost look like the baleen in a whale, like that used to strain stuff out of the water. I have a link in the show notes, and he's right. That would make a good item of the day. Maybe we'll put that on the list. But I have a link again in the show notes today where you can see what they look like on uh, Amazon, and they are quite useful uh, for many things. Here's another one. Curtis says I had a commuter car, a 1995 Mercury Sable. I hit a rock that had fell off a cliff. The rock severed a fuel line. I used my Leatherman to cut a punctuated, punctured section out. Then I used a coolant reservoir line to sleeve splice. I used a hose clamp from the coolant line to secure it. I never fully repaired it. Um, I have a similar story. So I bought a car when I got out of the Army. It was a 1978 Ford Mustang II four-cylinder. It actually looked like a pretty cool car. kind of wish I kept it. They're like a Colt car now, those Mustang twos, and they're actually worth some money. And this one could have been really fixed up nice, honestly. It wasn't in that bad of shape. But I actually did, uh, while I was kind of bumming around, before I took my walk on the Appalachian Trail and before I came to Texas as well, and just like hanging out with people, and I did some work for this guy that did lights and, and sound work for local bands that played in bars and stuff like that. And I was hell and gone from home. And I was coming over a place called Blue Mountain, which is about the middle of nowhere. And uh, I'm, I'm driving along, and I see this possum, like, laying in the center of the road. Not really the center, but, like, to my side of the road, but, like, where my wheels are going to hit him. And he was dead as far as I he was playing possum, right? I figured he was dead. So I figured I didn't want to roll over him and gush him all over, so I kind of went to straddle the possum so that he'd be in the middle of the car. And uh, just as I'm about to go over him, I see him lift his head up. He's not dead. And I feel a pretty hard thunk, and like a thunk, thunk. And a second thunk, I think, remember that steering box we were talking about? I think he hit the steering box. I could feel it at the steering wheel. And I kind of laughed, you know, like, I didn't try to hurt him, but, you know, dumbass, you shouldn't have looked up. 
not a lot of clearance under a Mustang II to begin with, but a possum had probably pulled it off if he kept his head down. Uh, my laughter was short-lived as the car went... And the first thump had been a metal fuel line going into the fuel pump, which is very down low on that vehicle. It is the middle of the night. It is dark as hell. It is a scary place to be. But I had some rubber tubing that was basically, I'd used it that day uh, to fix up a, an outboard motor that was about the right diameter. And I was able to use some um, tin snips that I had in the car and cut the fuel line and some pliers are where I cut it because it crimped it shut to like play with it and get it open on both sides and get a piece of that rubber tubing and jam it onto uh, the, uh, the fuel pump line. And I didn't have any kind of really uh, clamps or anything like that, but I took some wire, I had some baling wire in that car, and tightened the baling wire as tight as I could on both sides with it, and I was able to get home with that. That's, that's my other kind of real MacGyver one. And that one wasn't that complicated, except it was pitch dark in the middle of the Blue Mountain, and I was doing it with a freaking uh, flashlight in my teeth. Um, so... Um, that was after my army days, though, so I was a little bit more informed than when I made my uh, my, uh, my my hand throttle for my Grand Prix. Next one here comes from uh, I'm just gonna call him G because he doesn't give me a name. His G is his uh, first initial and his email address. It looks like so. Say, hey Jack, here's my stranded vehicle story. This took place in the summer, right after graduating high school in 1993. My brother and I were stranded with an early '80s Nissan Sentra. The car was 50 or a hundred dollar Peter car. Yeah, we used to have those guys, 50 to hundred dollar Peter cars. We had known for a while the fuel pump was going out, but we just kept driving because it eventually started. But this time the fuel pump was dead. We walked home in the middle of the night, took dad's lawnmower gas, walked back to the car, emptied out the washer reservoir, filled it with gas, cut the washer hose and ran it into the carburetor. We got it running and made it home. I remember having to feather the washers to make it run. There are many more details to this story, Jack, and it's absolutely true. Give me a call if you want more details. Uh, my brother and I grew up around cars and knew what to look for, so most people wouldn't think to do what we did. Uh, so that's that's a pretty cool thing. So what he's saying, you know how you can push a button and it squirts juice up on your window to clean your windows off? Yeah, well, they filled that with gasoline, ran the hose to the intake on the carburetor, and just lightly kept juice and gas into the top of the carburetor to keep the car running. Um, that's a tough one to pull off, but if you say it happened, I'll believe you. Um, this is uh, from Andy. Andy says, says, I went two years in the Corps without any leave longer than a 90, than a 96. Uh, in the summer of 88, my battalion spent three months at 29 Palms along with the FT&E in August. Some of our bleeding-edge technology called GPS and competing technology called PLRS, GPS won the eval. Two weeks before leaving the stumps, I requested leave. That day we returned, I brought an old Goldwing, that's a motorcycle for those who don't know, for 500 bucks, packed a bag and headed north on I-15. I stopped at a tavern in Schaefer, California for a beer. When I walked out of the bar at a little after twilight, I started the bike and put it in gear. Nope. Wheeled the bike under some lights and noticed the pin connecting the shift lever to the shifter was gone. Went in, got an aluminum can, tore it with my desert-hardened hands, formed a one-quarter-inch pin, inserted it where it needed to be, and hauled ass up the highway. The pin lasted the entire two-week trip, including the detour around the Yosemite wildfires. Thanks a lot for bringing this up, Jack. I haven't thought about this for a long time. 
If you can fix it with a beer can, then fix it with a beer can, guys. Here's a dad to the rescue one that makes you feel like, damn, I should have thought of that. Uh, this is from David. He said, my two best friends, uh, Jason and Chris, went spotlighting rabbits one night with me. About one in the morning, Chris tried to do a two-point turn on a dirt road and got stuck in the ditch. They tried to get it out, but were not able. They began walking and eventually got a ride into town, got his dad out of bed to come help us. When they arrived back at the, tr the truck, his dad looks at it, pulls a shovel out of their truck, takes a couple shovelfuls of dirt, and the truck came right out. It's always a good idea to see what assets you have and do everything you can before you get your dad out of bed. David, yeah, I would have got my dad out of bed for that. I'll tell you right now. But uh, that's part of why I'm doing this show. So some of you are like rolling your eyes going, come on. Listen, that was an obvious one. But people all the time sit in a problem and there's a solution within arm's reach, or at least a couple steps reach, if they just understand and assess the tools that they have. That's why we're doing this show, so good one there. Uh, since I was driving, this was from Aaron, I was driving across state from Spokane to Seattle, and noticed my engine temperature was climbing in my Datsun pickup. I pulled over at a rest stop, fortunately, only a mile or two away. My radiator fan mount broke somehow and caused the radiator fan to cut through my radiator hose. Using a piece of aluminum can, duct tape and bailing wire, I plugged the leak by tightly wrapping the duct tape over a piece of can and using bailing wire and dikes to twist tie, repair even tighter, sort of like two hose clamps. Aaron, yeah, I've done similar things with pieces of pipe. You know, find a piece of pipe and use it to fix a, a busted radiator hose when you can't cut the piece out and still make it re uh, reach. Uh, good one there. Um, says the, the, This is from Ian. He says, I can't claim this one, but it bears repeating. Our neighbor, when I was growing up, an old farmer was heading somewhere in an old Ford pickup, and it quit running. After some investigating, he discovered the rotor had busted in the distributor. He searched around in the ditch until he found an old nail, bent it around the distributor shaft, and made his own rotor and made it home with the truck. Have a great day, Ian. Again, not a lot of vehicles that that would pertain to anymore. Um, this one comes from Gary. Gary says, a friend had purchased a used pickup. When I was chosen to drive it home, 50 miles of Alaska Mountain Road, after the first stop sign, sharp left turn has accelerated the left rear axle and wheel passed me and rolled a bit down the road into the ditch. He jacked the truck up. I fetched the tire and axle. We discovered the rear differential cover missing, and spiders had apparently, and the and the spiders apparently were seized and were torched off. The key keeper was secure as, for the other axle, as I recall. We ran the axle in, found some big washers in our emergency pack. Yes, this truck has a topper, just full of parts and everything, but an extra engine since we work and travel the state. We put oversized washers on and fastened the tie wire, multiple turns of the tie wire inside the pumpkin where the retainer keepers should have been. Off I went watching the side mirror more than in front of me. I guess there were plenty of sparks about every 10 miles I'd stop and we'd uh, add a new tie wire. Left turns in the road were not good, but the next right turn would slam the axle back in. At one point, a moose ran out in front of me as I was coming off Uh, and let a left sway in the road, not wanting to slam on the brakes with the tire out three inches. And ju I just puckered up. I'm pretty sure the moose bonded via, <laughs> bonded via eye contact, but no contact was made. Of course, my buddy had to call me and ask if I needed new shorts. We all made it to his place in one piece. His big smile as he looked at me and said, I don't know one other soul that would have driven a truck like that on these roads as fast as you did with that issue. 
all that was uh, all, was that all bag padding required? We succeeded, and well, yes, the speed limit was 55. So, some of you that are not mechanically inclined may not basically understand this, but your your rear wheel is attached to you know your your well, it's a rotor and all, but there, there's an axle, and that axle slides down what you would probably think of as the axle. It goes inside and it engages in that pumpkin that's the differential, and there's things to keep it from coming out, and those things were gone. So they did the best they could to hold it in there. It wasn't really receiving any traction, I would imagine, from the differential, and it was just basically stuck in there, you know, and, and just able to let turn but move in and out. Um, I don't know that I would do that one unless it was an absolute emergency. Uh, this one's from Matthew. He says, shortly after graduating college, I had enough cash to drive my pickup again. A lifted uh, 73 F-250. Me and my friend and my girlfriend took it out to a bar we used to spend Friday nights at. Remember when teens could hang out in small-town bar and be ent entertained with pop and pool? Uh, well, when we left, I had to get a jump start, but I figured I'd probably left something on. We were going back to town. Uh, we were going down back roads telling my girl stories Uh, of our old high school days when we both noticed that the headlights were getting dim really fast. Seconds after it died and I coasted to a stop. I had jumper cables and even one of those big jump packs, but there was nobody around and the jump pack wasn't strong enough to start the big block on its own. After a few minutes of scratching our heads, I decided we could push start it. However, there wasn't a place that the jump pack would sit and allow the hood to latch. I ended up hooking the jumper cables, closing the hood on them, and running them through the window to the jump pack sitting on my dash. Me and my friend pushed the giant of the truck while the, my girl popped the clutch. It fired up and took us 15 miles a block from my friend's house before it died again, at which, at which we got his car to jump it and then swap batteries. Come to find out, I had loaned the same, loaned the same friend the voltage regulator off of it and to use on his pickup a year earlier. Both of us forgot about That was 10 years ago and probably my first experience with two is one and one is none. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting one. Uh, this next one, short one, says, Hey, Jack, I want to share my ideas for the vehicle show. One, a headlamp. After having to change a tire at midnight, it was really, uh, it really was midnight. No exaggerations. I was so glad I replaced the basic flashlight with a headlamp. Two, once I had my whole wiper fly off my 78 Datsun pickup in 2003, it was plenty old and replaced it with a rag and duct tape to keep it from scratching my windshield until I could buy a new one, which for a high school was about three months. So, okay, I, I get that one. I'll tell you a secret that you can do if you're stuck in rain without windshield wipers working. It doesn't work great, but it does work good enough to see if you have a potato. Now, I know not everybody's driving around with a potato, but if you know this, you might have a potato when you're taking a long trip, just because. If you take a potato and you cut it in half and you smear it all over your window, it'll form a starch-like shield, and as you're driving in the rain, it'll cause the rain to sheet off the window. It's not a good thing. If you turn the windshield wipers on after you do it, it makes a real hell of a mess, and it takes a lot to get it cleaned off. But if you've ever tried to drive in rain with failed windshield wipers, you know you really can't see and it's really dangerous. If you had to get somewhere and it wasn't absolutely pouring, this would give you enough sheeting action to get somewhere. Don't ask me how I know that one. <laughs> um, here's another one for us. So this next one's really long. I read through it. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. It's from Craig. 
Craig basically got stranded out in a kind of remote area with a buddy you want to show in this remote area. And they got a flat tire and they needed to change tire. And uh, it turned out they had the wrong size lug wrench with the vehicle. How it got that way is not really important. Uh, Leatherman's and Multitools were new at the time, but he had one. And he ended up taking it and filing uh, the lug nut because it was too small. The wrench was a little bit too small. Filed the edges of the lug wrench until it almost fit and barely started to fit on the lug nut. Took a rock and hammered it on to expand it further and then was able to use it to actually get those lug nuts off and swap the tire out. That's pretty creative. Here's a pretty quick, simple one. This is from uh, Greek Man. He says, uh, on my 30, one day on my 32 year old Simica, a French car with some Fiat and Chrysler inside, uh, it was stuttering. Reaching work, I found the spark plug terminal connector in one cylinder was off and missing its retaining wire. I fashioned one from a paper clip right there in front of my jaw drop coworkers. The fix held for a year and a half when the same thing happened to another cylinder and I had the whole wiring replaced. So what he's talking about is the wire that plugs onto the spark plug itself. Uh, the wire is there, but the retainer, there's a little, if you've ever done this and changed your own plugs, you kind of push on, it kind of snaps on there. Well, I guess the internal thing that makes it snap on there, a little retaining clip had fallen out. So you just basically made one with a, uh, with a paper clip. Uh, simple, easy, and works. Uh, this is from Chipmunk. Chipmunk says, uh, years ago, 40 to be exact, we owned a Ford Pinto. I'm sorry. Our very first date was in a tiny town in the mountains of Virginia. We got ready to go home. The car wouldn't crank. We ended up putting a small stick in the carburetor to hold it open until we could get back home. Fast forward about five years, and these young married couple, couple were still driving that thing. At one point, the exhaust pipe started dragging on the ground, so my husband hung it back up with part of a, uh, a wire hanger. All right. A 40-year-old Pinto. Well, you gotta really, you really have to have some sentimental, sentimental attachment to be driving a Pinto that long. Um, of course, everybody knows the old joke about hitting a speed bump and the car blowing up, but, uh, that was a little overblown, pun intended. Okay, this next one, I almost want to call bullshit, but I know Richard, so I, I guess I'm gonna buy it. Um, he says, I have a couple. I've owned a lot of beaters to deliver a lot of pizza, and I've done a lot of long trips in the US and Canada. I had a 78 Volkswagen Scirocco that dropped a rod or something. It was a very bad sound. At the end of a long commute to college, I pulled all the spark plugs out and drove the last couple miles on the starter motor. So what I'm guessing he's saying, again, you got a manual, and you put it in gear, and you turn the starter motor, and the tar starter motor's running off the battery, And it's engaging and turning the flywheel and all and, 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 and causing the vehicle to move forward. So I guess what he's saying is he put it in first gear, turned the, the, the ignition and just held the ignition on in a starter motor. Basically, he made it into a very slow electric car and, and was able to get it the last couple miles. I wouldn't have believed that would have worked, um, but... Richard's been around a long time. If he says it worked, I'll believe him. He also says, I had an early 70s Chevette. I'm going to stop there for a second. That was our go-to throwaway car in the 80s. You could go down to Reading, Pennsylvania and buy a Chevette for $100 to $200 that would, that would run, and you could drive it for about six months and it would die, and you just took it to the junkyard and got like 50 bucks for it and went and got another one. Anyway, I had an early 70s Chevette where the manual shifter broke off, so I learned to drive the car by reaching out into the hole and actuating the shift fork with two fingers. You needed strong hands and brains to completely invert the shift pattern. First was down and right instead of left and up. 
I drove 12,000 mile loop of the country in a VW diesel pickup, which started losing compression after 10,000 miles. It forced me to stop, only stop the car at the top of long hills. By the time I hit Texas, that wouldn't even work. So I left the car running for three days as I drove back to New Jersey. I drove up the Alcan with a, a Land Rover Discovery pulling a trailer. Way too much tongue weight because the sewage tank was removed. We got 75% through, almost through Vancouver, before it actually broke the 7,700-pound receiver hitch at the back of the, of the LR. We ratcheted and strapped the receiver together to get the Pr Princess Auto to buy steel enough to box the whole thing together with big bolts so we could drive down to Yellowstone and then back to New Jersey. Man, that's, uh, that's wanting to get it done. So this one's from Urban Aviary. He says that, I'm going to shorten this one, they were off-roading, and all of a sudden the car starts steaming from under the hood, and so they stop it, and they get out, and they pop the hood up, and there's about a two-inch hole in the radiator, and what had happened is the battery had come loose from its mounting. It slammed in, and the edge of the battery had made a hole in the radiator. He ended up taking a pair of a Leatherman, and basically just pinching the fins back together and begin to fold them over onto themselves until they basically sealed it up, Started, it was leaking a little bit more, so they shut it off, and they did it again, and kept just turning the fins over, like turning a drinking straw over onto itself. Sealed it up, started up, and it held. He ended up driving for several more years as a daily driver, never did anything else to replace it. One thing I never tried that my grandfather swore worked uh, was that if you had a, a minor leak in your radiator, you could throw black pepper in the radiator, and it would seal it. I've never been willing to try that one. But that just made me think of that. So this one's from Charles. He uh, says he's driving on a really uh, remote road, and the car just shuts off. And uh, he's there stuck, and he's got no overheating, no rods thrown, no lack of voltage, no liquids on the ground. All the maintenance up to date, the truck just stalls at 35 miles an hour on a logging road. And this is a long time ago because it's before cell phones. Some old guy comes by. Tells him what's going on. The guy says, hey, just let's just kick and disconnect the battery for about 15 minutes, and then uh, you can hook it back up, and uh, it should reset the computer. It's probably just something, a, a bad code in the computer, and just it'll probably start off for you. I'm not going to be going back to town for a while. I'm going to be gone out doing something. I'll be back in six to seven hours, and if you're still here, I'll take you into town then. Uh, and uh, never saw the guy again because just disconnecting the battery for 15 minutes uh, cleared whatever error code was causing the uh, vehicle not to run right. I'm going to pause here for a second, and I'm going to say that um, what I said at the beginning is now off the table. I am eliminating some of these because there are so many and how long the show's going to go, and if you wrote me a book uh, and I can't quickly get to what you did, I may be eliminating yours, so I'm sorry about that, but... For a show like this, as I said, I needed a short explanation of what you did. Uh, so if you hear yours uh, not included, it may be that you wrote me a book and I couldn't whittle through it fast enough to get it into the show. Uh, this one's from uh, Braden. Braden says, I got my work truck, Nebraska State Government Vehicle, home when a rear U-joint failed in the middle of Sandhills, Nebraska. No phone reception, no traffic, no houses for a day's walk. Truck was early, early 2000s, half-ton Dodge 4x4, crawled under the truck. Slid the drive shaft out, went home in front-wheel drive, basically. So there's another example of that. That seems to be a value one. Uh, it says, limp home on a blown tire using cardboard. I got one for you. A couple of years back, I hit a rock here in Southern California while driving an 81 Honda Civic. It took out both my passenger side tires. Having only one spare and no cell coverage, I needed a solution. There was a bar and grill nearby, so I limped the car over to its dumpster and began cutting up cardboard. I then cut open the sidewall of my ruined tire 
and a few spots impacted with pieces of cardboard at very low speed. I made it about seven or eight miles before the tire gave way. More cardboard, and I bet I would have made the 10 miles necessary to get home, but I was in cell coverage and walking distance at this point. Thanks for all you do, Jack. That's cool. So if you don't get that one, he cut the sidewalls out of the tire and stuffed it full of cardboard and made it seven to eight miles on that tire. That's a, that's a good one and one I've seen done before. Here's some stuff from a seasoned off-roader. He says, if your tire's off the bead, you can clean up the bead and run a ratchet strap around the center line of the tire. It will spread out the tire and push it onto the bead. While inflating it, you need to wiggle the tire around a little. Some soapy water helps. Two things to keep under the driver's seat of your truck. A bar of soap. Don't worry about putting it in the bag. Just put it on the carpet. Soap will not hurt anything. and It will stay there better. And a nice stick of fat lighter. Both have good uses, and as a bonus, they can... Uh, there are odor reducers. Oh, and a box of baking soda also. With broken suspension parts, jumper cables, a couple batteries, and a sealed package of 7018 welding rods you can get off the trail. So you can do your own welding using jumper cables and some batteries. I recommend you practice that first. Uh, the best one we did was dropping in the oil pan and pulling off the bottom, the bottom off a broken rod off the crank taped up the journal to keep the oil pressure and drove back to the trailer. Radiator leak, remove the cap so it won't build pressure. That's actually a pretty good one. Let me tell you something about that now. When you shut your vehicle off, it will usually shoot hot coolant all over the place, but that will work to get you home. A high lift jack and a piece of three-quarter inch plywood has got me unstuck from some crazy situations. Uh, traction can be increased drastically by lowering tire pressure. I'm talking to 10 PSI or even less. Uh, definitely on that one. Tell you a story that didn't work real quick that made me think of. I see this dude, he pulls into a gas station and his car is overheating like crazy and he goes and gets a hose and I figure, well, he's probably not stupid and unfortunately for him he was. I figured what he was going to do is wait till his vehicle cooled down and then take the radiator cap off and top it up or leave it running and remove the radiator cap so there's no pressure and you can add water right away like that to your radiator. Instead, his vehicle is shut down, his engine is blazing hot, he took the garden hose and before I could say anything, he turned the water on and sprayed his motor down with water to cool it. Some of you are going, what's the problem? Everybody else is going... Crack. Yep. You take screaming hot metal, you quench it with cold water, and boom, he cracked his entire engine block. Don't do that. I've only seen it once, but since it's happened, I know it can happen again. Uh, Jason says, having only one key for my, motor, my, my motorcycle, I wisely had cut a, co a copy cut in case I lost the original. I tested the copy out several times on the ignition, confirmed it worked smoothly. The next day, I took my motorcycle out for a good long ride and pulled into a gas station with a near-empty tank. I shut the engine off and transferred the key from the ignition to the locked gas cap. The newly cut key would not open my empty gas tank. I still had another 50 miles of riding before I'd be home for a good 30 seconds. I sat on my motorcycle, pissed off at myself for not testing the key on the gas cap the day prior to it occurred to me. My motherland multi-tool in my pocket had a file on it. I took a close look at the new key and gently filed down the sharp teeth until it was finally able to open the gas cap and fill the tank. Today, if I leave the house without a multi-tool, it feels the same to most people who leave the house without their wallet or their phone, or for some of us, without your gun, I would imagine as well. This one is from Dennis. He says, uh, I slid my Jeep down a steep cow pasture into a high tensile electric fence. 
I couldn't drive without risking breaking the posts and the fence wires. And he has the S in posts and the S in wires with a dollar sign to make a point. I used my come-along to attach the Jeep to the lowest part of the opposite fences to control the rest of the slide down the hill. It took about an hour, but saved a lot of things from getting worse. I have a quick YouTube video about it. I also have another YouTube uh, video about my Jeep, other Jeep crash and saves. Thanks for helping me figure out a lot about life. Would love you to ask folks to watch my channel about my walk to freedom. They can search for Dylan, Dennis Allen, City Boy Homesteader. The video I'm writing about uh, is this one, and other video starts where the crash happens, this one. So I'll put his two videos of his uh, vehicle recovery things on the show notes today. They'll say Dennis, Dennis, Dennis Recovery 1 and Dennis Recovery 2 in the show notes. And I have to say the videos are pretty entertaining. Candy says uh, she always carries uh, a couple gallons of water, some extra oil, 90-mile-an-hour tape or Gorilla Tape, tools, and AAA card. On the way to work one day, saw the temperature gate creeping up, pulled off the road far enough to be safe, stopped to check, fine spray coming out of the lower radiator hose, let the engine cool down a bit, wrapped the tape around the hose four or five times, added water, and was on her way. Pretty boring story, but useful. Uh, incredibly useful, Candy. Because there's so many people that would have been stuck in that situation, and it's such an easy thing to do. And it is one of the types of things I'm looking to cover today, so thanks for sending it in. Steve says when he first started driving a bigger, he had his freight liner, and all of a sudden he's driving along and gets a low air pressure uh, uh, alarm. And he had a leak at the uh, glad hand connection between the truck and the trailer. That's basically the, the, the air hose is where they clamp on. Uh, so that the air brakes will work on the trailer from the truck. And he, so when he realized that, he heard hissing of air. He wasn't really prepared. He was new to the job, so he didn't have any extra O-rings. So long story short, he walks over to a pine tree, collects and melted some, some pine sap, applied it all over the connection where it was leaking. It quickly hardened in the cold, and he limped his way back to the next truck stop, Steve from South Carolina. That's a really good one, Steve, and that's one that people might find other ways to use, especially when it's cold out. That pine sap will harden really, really quick, and it melts very easily as well with some heat. This next one is actually very important, and it is the number one reason, other than a leak, that you'll have a vehicle overheat. It's what's called a stuck thermostat. And to do a little mechanical explanation for people that don't understand this, Your vehicle has a thermostat in it that allows the coolant to circulate once your vehicle gets over a certain temperature. This keeps your vehicle at a nice, smooth operating temperature, okay? And uh, what can happen is that thermostat can stick. It just won't open. And you might have a thermostat that opens at 190 degrees or 200 degrees or 180 degrees, depending on what your vehicle calls for. Now, the thing is, your vehicle can run just fine with your your coolant running through it constantly. Um, so why the thermostat, cold weather, it's, it runs more optimally if we don't overcool the engine. So here, now you know that, here's what, what, what Jim has to say. For your field expedient vehicle repair show, I had a pickup truck that overheated on me due to a stuck thermostat. After letting things cool down a little, I pulled the upper radiator hose off the thermostat housing. I stuck a screwdriver down inside the housing and pounded a couple holes through the thermostat and then put the hose back on. This was a good enough solution to get me where I was going and allowed me to do a proper repair at a later time. I hope this helps. An old, old method to solving this problem, uh, when it was summertime and you didn't need a new thermostat for a while, 
was you take the housing off, just pull the thermostat out and throw it the hell away and put it back on until you get a new one. The thing is, there's a gasket there. You need to clean that gasket up and put a new gasket on it or at least put some sealant on to make a gasket or something like that. If you're in the middle of the road, that doesn't work real well, does it? But, but popping some holes in a thermostat are pretty easy to do. Uh, works out just fine. Unfortunately, due to the way they open, they usually open the way you can look in. They would open towards you, so it's really hard to just like pry them open and get them to stick open. So smashing some holes through them works really well. Keep that in mind for a later one. This one's from Alexander. Basically, he says he was on a cross-country trip and uh, 800 miles into a 2,000-mile trip. All of a sudden, lost all power. The gas pedal goes to the floor. Put the Jeep in neutral and coasted about a half mile nearest exit, coasted to a gas station parking lot. Got out, looked at the pedal, it was completely disconnected. The throttle cable broke off, a lot like my story. But on his, there was a plastic end that had rotted away, so the cable had a little loop on it. So he just took a t some tie wraps and tie wrapped it back to the, uh, the pedal and was able to drive it just fine after that. And it lasted two years after that. He says he always has tie wraps with him. I think if you don't have tie wraps in your vehicle kit, you're wrong. No Debt from Arizona says, First time I ever broke down was with my dad on a Jeep trail above Cooper's Creek, Arizona. Cooper Creek, Copper Creek, Arizona. I was 14 and the Land Cruiser would not go into reverse for use in backup. It would also not go into first or any other gear. Turns out the pin fell out of the linkage on the three-on-the-tree shift linkage. We used parachute cord to lash the linkage together to get home. The parachute cord was from the survival kit he had made and carried when he was in Scouts. So parachute cord to the rescue for a linkage on a transmission on a three-on-a-tree. Here's three cool ones from someone I'll call DR because he didn't use his name, and that's some initials I pulled out of his email. It says, um, <clears throat> motor oil saved the day, wipers on a shoestring, and zip ties are essential. So motor oil saved the day. I ran out of fuel in my diesel Mercedes due to the sticking fuel gauge sending unit. Knowing that diesels, these diesels run on almost any oil and the car had seven quart oil pan, I drained a quart of oil and put it in the fuel tank. Fortunately, a quart of oil got me to the gas station six miles away. So, uh, that's an older diesel. You won't want to try that with your newer diesels, but your older diesels, yeah, you can throw motor oil right in them and they'll run. They'll also run on things like peanut oil and corn oil and things like that. Just saying. Wipers on a shoestring. In high school, my girlfriend drove an old VW Bug. The wiper stopped working one day in a downpour. Instead of Jack's Potato, they used something even more cool. They were able to use shoestrings tied to the wiper arm and ran through each side vent window to operate the wipers. So if you imagine you're driving down the road, driver's got his right hand on the wheel and a shoestring in one hand, passenger's got a shoestring in her, her, her right hand, and they just keep pulling the wipers back and forth, back and forth using a shoestring to do that. That's pretty damn clever and would get you out of a bad situation. Zip ties are essential. Riding a motorcycle one night and the rear brake rod comes loose. I wrapped up around the rear axle. I was able to untwist the rod and use zip ties to fasten the rod to the frame from, to prevent it from applying the rear brake. I made it 100 miles home using only the front brake. He also says uh, Harbor Freight generators will not run a battery charger. So if you're planning on running a battery charger off a Harbor Freight generator, don't because it doesn't work, even though they work just fine on a wall outlet. So maybe you need an inverter generator to run them. I'm not sure. Um, I do know they run just fine on an inverter uh, off Stephen Harris Battery Bank. Uh, this, this one's from Mark. He says, I have rigged many motorcycles to get home through the years. I prefer old American island, iron to a fault, I'll admit. When dealing with said old American iron, there are certain intricacies one must contend with. 
mainly a ton of vibration and less than stellar quality OEM parts from certain era. Small tool bag and multi-tool with extra plugs, switches, wire, etc. are staple on my old bikes. This particular shakedown was run on my 58 Harley. I had not mounted said tool bag, and the multi-tool got used just prior to heading out, and I didn't put it back in the pouch on my hip. Dope. Uh, a few miles into the initial shakedown, I sprung a fuel leak with a pocket knife. I cut the leak out, but I couldn't tighten the hose clamp. Well, I just so happened to wear a uh, wrench ring, so I sandcasted a small wrench, uh, bent around the finger, kind of cool, and I got get a few compliments on it weekly. So it just so happens to fit the hose clamp. So with my pocket knife and ring, I completed a roadside repair. I kicked the old beast back to life. Completed the shakedown. I, I still wear the ring now, a multifunctional, uh, and this is from TNJR. So basically, he's got a little wrench ring that was able to turn the uh, hose clamp. That's that's pretty cool right there. Um, here's one that will only apply to you folks with turbochargers or turbocharger intercoolers for your diesels. But uh, since he was about 100 miles from home on the way to the kid's house, Suddenly, here's a whoosh-like uh, ruptured airline and lost some power. Sure enough, the hose from the intercooler to the intake manifold had popped a hole, so I was losing boost. Kept going to the kid's house, but on Sunday, who's going to have an intercooler hose for a 2005 Jeep Liberty CRD diesel? Exactly no one. After contemplating for a while, I went to Walmart and bought, two, bought a bicycle tire, repatch, tire patch kit with a bundle of zip ties. I cleaned the hose and glued the edges of the tear together. I applied the bicycle tire patch over the stuck-together hole and then wrapped zip ties side-by-side side to create a strong back over the inner tube tire patch, let it cure for about two hours. Drove the Jeep all the way home, 125 miles on back roads, max speed 60 miles per hour, so wasn't making full boost by any stretch, but it held together all the way with no indication of leakage. I immediately ordered two new Samco Air cooler hoses uh, from Herb. I, I, hoses and belts are cheap. Not having them is expensive. Um, in some vehicles now, these new serpentine belts, one belt does everything. They're a real pain in the ass to, uh, to put on a vehicle. Uh, doing them in the field may be very difficult, but doable if you have the tools. But a lot of vehicles that have you know three different uh, uh, belts, it's pretty quick if you lose a belt to just put a new belt on. Um, if you have an older vehicle like that, especially having belts for it, definitely the main hoses that can fail and really give you a problem, those are cheap. And one of the things I used to do with my vehicles all the time, with older vehicles, is I would say, okay, I'm going to do is buy a brand new top and bottom radiator hose. And I'm going to go ahead and put them on because they're brand new and they're less likely to fail. But the old ones that haven't failed yet, I'd clean them up, rub them down with Armor All, Okay, which is a good protectant for your rubber stuff, and then throw them in the trunk. And then that way you had a spare, but you also had a brand new item on the vehicle. You can do the same thing with your belts. Replace them before they break, but save your old ones for spares in case you need them in an emergency. So David says he was driving from Nacogdoches to Dallas for, for staff meeting in the dog days of summer with his 280-pound friend, a single-cab Ford Ranger. About an hour and a half into the four-hour trip, my temperature gauge hits red and continues to rise. We're on a schedule and barely on track to make the staff meeting on time, so we ride the remaining two and a half hours, blasting the heater on full blast above 80-degree temperatures uh, with 50% uh, humidity. We made it. Both of us had salt stains imprinted on our seats and our clothes and smelled like bum's nutsack. I likely cracked the heads 
to some extent, but the truck ran more or less for the next three years. Okay, remember when I said that we'd come to one that there was a better solution to than, uh, you know, just doing this with poking some holes in the thermostat? Um, you likely did do some serious damage to the engine. It's probably never going to be right again without a complete rebuild. Uh, this is one of those situations you're gonna be late for a staff meeting, but you know, you know, your shit breaks down. You you can't make, you know, you you, you, you can only be held if you would have waited 30 minutes for the vehicle to cool down. It would have been safe to remove the uh, the the hose, probably not even 30, but just 30 to be safe. Make sure there's no pressure on it, and uh, poked a couple holes in the thermostat. I, I'll bet you 90 to nothing that was your problem that you had a stuck thermostat. Because if you'd have been leaking coolant or something like that, you, you wouldn't have made it. You probably had a partially stuck thermostat. But there is value in this. If you need to get somewhere that's not that far and you can let the vehicle cool down, running the heater will pull heat off the motor and maybe get you to a place where you can do a repair, uh, such as removing the thermostat or something else like that. Uh, the worst thing you can do with a vehicle that's overheating, is just keep going. Um, if you do it long enough, you will do serious permanent damage to your vehicle. It seems like moderate permanent damage to the vehicle um, is, is what happened here. David says, I fixed a starter with a hammer before, push started manuals by popping the clutch, replaced a taillight with a flashlight taped in place, used an antenna to unlock my Ford's 96 Ranger by accessing a hole under the handle, Worked on the Explorers, too. So let's talk about fixing a starter with a, a hammer. A lot of times if a vehicle won't turn over and the starter's not doing so well anymore, you can get underneath the vehicle, you can tap on the starter motor with a hammer, and then when you turn the key, it'll start. Uh, I had one vehicle, it was that Mustang, that uh, I probably drove for about three weeks with about every third time I started it having to get under there and tap the starter motor. Now, you might wonder why a mechanic would drive a car around that long with a bad starter motor instead of just replacing the starter motor. Let me tell you something about a four-cylinder 1977 Ford Mustang II and the starter motor. It's one of those vehicles that's why mechanics hate engineers. Normal starter motor, you, you disconnect the negative terminal on your battery so that you don't electrocute yourself, and then you disconnect the wires off your starter motor. You pull two bolts out of it, and you pull the starter motor out, And you put the new starter motor in, you put the two bolts back in, you hook the wires back up, put the negative terminal back on your battery, and you go about your happy freaking business. Not with a 1977 Ford Mustang II with a four-cylinder in it, you don't. No, because you can't get the freaking starter motor out. Yep, the frame of the car is in the way, and when you take the bolts out of the starter motor, and you try to pull the starter motor out, there ain't enough room for it to come out. So I had bought the starter motor, and got underneath the car and began that process. I couldn't get the starter motor out, realized what I needed to do, was pissed off about it, had a date that night, put the starter motor back in, tapped it with a hammer, uh, took a shower first, and went on my date. And uh, she was not impressed when I had to get under the car <laughs> and tap the starter motor with the hammer, but got her home and everything went just fine with my date. So I went about another week and a half like that before I got, or basically another week, I got back to another weekend to do it. And this is what you had to do. You had to take a jack and put it up underneath the motor with a piece of two by four so you didn't dent something like the oil pan. You had to disconnect the motor mount 
on the passenger side, which is the side that the starter motor was on, and jack the motor up a couple inches, and then the starter motor would come out. Then you put the new starter motor in, you lower the, the motor back into its motor mount, bolt it back in, and then go on as usual. That's why I drove it around tapping on it for that long. Uh, popping a clutch. I don't know. Does that work on modern vehicles? I've never tried it. Like, Is that like an, an out-of-date thing, like unless you're driving an old vehicle that doesn't work anymore? Is the safety police get involved with that so vehicles wouldn't start on their own? I'm not really sure. Uh, I'd like to know from somebody. Could, if I had like a brand-new you know, uh, five-speed Ford Mustang 5.0, you know, 2017, and it, was, it had a dead battery, can you still pop the clutch in one? I haven't driven a modern stick shift and they weren't they, the ones I drove would no longer be considered modern last one I have for you this is from Taku uh, it says hey Jack back in 1970s I worked as a mechanic on commission at a mobile gas station none of that certification BS just a guy who knew how to turn wrenches one afternoon a car pulls up and one of the bay doors is screeching like a power steering belt that's not quite tight enough so I walk out and pop the hood and hear and and see her problem is alternator locked up. So I lower the hood and give the lady uh, the finger across the throat sign. She, turn, she turns it off and gets out. As I tell her the alternator and belt are shot, she says, oh, her husband can replace those. She just needs to get home. I look at the water pump, and there's another V-belt from the, from the crankshaft. So I pull out my pocket knife and cut the fried belt off, and tell her, don't stop or use your lights going home. No charge, have a nice day. The look on her face was pretty good. She didn't want to spend any money, and I did not want to spend any time. So I guess maybe some people would wonder what he means there. So your, your car has a battery to start it, and then it has an alternator to recharge the battery, and also that allows you to run the other electrical systems in your car, including things like your spark plugs. But if your battery's fully charged, your car will run a while uh, with, with a bad alternator or no alternator. So by just simply cutting the belt off the alternator, it just ended that issue. And as long as you got enough charge in your battery, you can get home. And that, that's what he did there. Now, kind of a thing that's important with that with troubleshooting is sometimes people will have a dead battery and they'll wonder, is it a purely a battery problem or is it a, a bad alternator and your battery is actually not really a bad battery, it's just not getting charged. So what you can do with a car is a, is a, very, in, you know, a very simple diagnostic is you can jump start it. Don't charge your battery way up. Just get enough juice in it to jump start it. Disconnect the negative terminal of your battery. And let it idle for 20, 30 minutes. If it runs for 20 or 30 minutes, well, you've only put a little bit of energy in that battery to get it started. That alternator's making power where the damn thing had stopped running by then. And you just hook it back up, and you know that all you need to do now is replace the battery. But if it cuts out, then you know that your alternator is in charge. And there's other ways to do that, but that's with no tools, no multimeter, no nothing. You can determine whether or not your alternator is putting out a charge. So I hope this has been an interesting show. Um, not every one of those stories was really easy to understand. Some of the stuff is highly visual. But I hope it gives you a lot of ideas about what you could do if you end up in a situation. And I hope the big takeaway is there's always something that you can do. Let me remind you now here at the end, if you like this show and uh, the work that we do and the information we put out, 
one of the ways you can support us is by doing your shopping when you're going to shop on Amazon at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com. Again, tspaz.com. And there's a link there. You can click to see the Amazon deals of the day. You click that link. And then you can search and you can do your shopping on Amazon. And no matter what you pick, as long as you click our link first, we get credit for whatever you buy on Amazon, no matter what it is. So it's a very simple, easy way you can support our show that doesn't cost you anything. Uh, and, and yet you're supporting the work that we do and the, the programming that you listen to. I also try to put out a review for you guys every day. And I do some encore reviews. Today's an encore review. That means I've done it before. Uh, but it's a product that did really well last year. It was a top 50 selling item on Amazon for us last year. It's the Mr. Coffee Electric Coffee Grinder, and I also call it a spice grinder because I use it a hell of a lot more to grind coffee than, I mean, spices than coffee. And basically it's a little electric grinder that you put stuff into and push a button and it grinds it up. And uh, these things work just fantastic. They're about 19 bucks with free shipping on Prime. And uh, I'll give you a real quick rub that's like a go-to rub that I use for chicken and quail and things like that. You use about a teaspoon each of thyme, garlic, onion. This would be dried garlic and dried onion, mustard seed, fennel seed, chili powder, dehydrated celery, and that is one of my secrets in my rubs, cumin, and black peppercorns, and kosher sea salt. Again, about a teaspoon each of that. And then about three tablespoons of paprika and about two tablespoons of dried parsley. And you pulse that in the grinder until you get the consistency you're looking for. Throw it in a jar, label it as a poultry rub or pork rub because it works great for not really like barbecue pork, for like grilling pork quickly and stuff like that. It's just fantastic. And you can make anything you want uh, as far as your different spice rubs and all. Maybe one day I'm going to do a show called The Prepper's. Spice Pantry or something like that with the stuff that belongs in there. And because I'll tell you what, you with about 20 different herbs and spices in your cabinet, you can make anything. I mean, you literally can make anything. And people say, Jack, what is all this cooking stuff with you and survival? Listen, this is about lifestyle design. The more money you have, the more resilient you are. And the more you can cook for yourself, the less that you eat out. And the happier you are and the happier your family is and the family that cooks together, eats together, and the family that eats together stays together, trust me. There's all types of survival lessons there. There's also health. Instead of eating junk garbage food, you're eating healthy food that you cook yourself. And this is one really great tool to have in your kitchen. Again, the Mr. Coffee Electric Coffee Grinder, or as I call it, the Spice Grinder. And i got to give Alton Brown credit. He was the first guy that I ever saw use one of these things as a spice grinder many years ago. And uh, I've I, I kind of picked up on that, and I, I've used it in my kitchen ever since. So I really recommend you check it out. But again, no matter what, if you're going to buy something on Amazon today, this week, next month, doesn't matter. If you just go to tspaz.com and click that first link before you uh, search for your items, you'll be supporting our show and the work that we do. With that, we got the ending song of the day. And the song is from the year... 1981 because the episode's 1981 and the song that I have for you today is Phil Collins uh, In the Air Tonight which a lot of people associate with Miami Vice and, and that's just like it's they're, they're intricately linked but do you know something about that? Th that song was only ever played on the pilot it was never played on that show again and yet somehow they're completely integrated in the minds of people that grew up and uh, lived through the 1980s And uh, John Adams says that this is a defining song of Phil Collins' solar career, but it was when he was still performing with Genesis. 
Uh, he mentions the Miami Vice thing, and uh, he says MTB de debuted this year and as well, and Collins would become a common face on the new network in both song and as a guest VJ. Uh, definitely. Now, what I wanted to point out with this song is there's this pro this song probably has more urban legends attached to it than any other song uh, that I know of as to its genesis, its origins, and what it's all about. Uh, there's there's some about it's you know he saw somebody drown when he was a kid. Uh, supposedly, there's another story that well, what really happened was someone uh, that he knew let someone else that he knew drown and didn't save him. And he wrote this song for that person that, that let the other person die. And then he played it one night with the lights and all of the sounds and in the darkness and because he knew and he wrote it because he knew that the guy that did that was going to be at that concert. And he did it and he looked right at him when he played it. And later that week, that man killed himself. You know what? All of it's bullshit. All of its bullshit in the air tonight was actually a message to his estranged, soon-to-be-divorced wife at the time. And by in the air, he was talking about how divorce and breakups don't just affect the two parties involved, but the entire family. That's what the song was really about. And if you go to Song Facts and look it up, you'll see his wife has a totally different story. Uh, she kind of blew her top a few years ago and said, I'm tired of all this crap about you know me leaving him. And it's an interesting, he said, she said, if you're into that kind of thing. I'm not. I just like good music. And this is good music. And it also is very much a defining song of the early 80s. So with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.